Elijah and Elisha were on their way from Gilgal. And Elijah said to Elisha, Please stay here, for the Lord has sent me as far as Bethel. But Elisha said, As the Lord lives, and as you yourself live, I will not leave you. So they went down to Bethel. And the sons of the prophets who were in Bethel came out to Elisha and said to him, Do you know that today the Lord will take away your master from over you? And he said, Yes, I know it. Keep quiet. Elijah said to him, Elijah, please stay here, for the Lord has sent me to Jericho. But he said, As the Lord lives, and as you yourself live, I will not leave you. So they came to Jericho. The sons of the prophets who were at Jericho drew near to Elijah and said to him, Do you know that today the Lord will take away your master from over you? And he answered, Yes, I know it. Keep quiet. Then Elijah said to him, Please stay here, for the Lord has sent me to the Jordan. But he said, As the Lord lives, and as you yourself live, I will not leave you. So the two of them went on. Fifty men of the sons of the prophets also went and stood at some distance from them, as they were both standing by the Jordan. Then Elijah took his cloak and rolled it up and struck the water, and the water was parted to the one side and to the other, till the two of them could go over on dry ground. When they had crossed, Elijah said to Elijah, Ask what I shall do for you before I am taken from you. And Elijah said, Please let there be a double portion of your spirit on me. And he said, You have asked a hard thing, yet if you see me as I am being taken from you, it shall be so for you, but if you do not see me, it shall not be so. And, and as they still went on and talked, behold, chariots of fire and horses of fire separated the two of them. And Elijah went, or Elijah went up by a whirlwind into heaven. And Elisha saw it, and he cried, My father, my father, the chariots of Israel and its horsemen. And he saw him no more. This is the word of the Lord. Once upon a time, there was a pastor who wanted to move the piano from that side of the stage to that side of the stage. And um, before he just decided to just do that, he went to every proper committee and board and influential member in the church and asked permission to move the piano. Permission was denied. And so the pastor decided He's just going to take matters into his own hands, and so he pushed the piano from that side to that side. The following Sunday, when people walked into the church, they were aghast that their pastor would have the audacity to do something against their will. So they fired him. A few months later, the pastor came back to that church that he had been dismissed from because there was a wedding coming up, and he had been asked to officiate at the wedding so um, that's why he came back and when he walked into the sanctuary he noticed that the piano had been moved from over here to over there and so he wondered what's going on so he asked his successor how were you able to get the piano moved like that so I never could and I asked everybody they flatly refused and uh, it cost me my job so I'd really like to know what your secret is. So the new pastor said to the outgoing pastor, I moved the piano myself one inch at a time so that by the time it got to the other side, no one noticed that anything was taking place. 
Well, change can be hard. It's especially hard when a radical change takes place without any warning. But when change takes place gradually over a long period of time, you don't notice it as much. Uh, so for the past three years or so, uh, we've had time to adjust to what is about to happen. Uh, Kara and I will likely be moving to one Nashville or another uh, in a few weeks or maybe months, but regardless of what we do, uh, Jared will be your senior pastor on October 16th. That will be our last Sunday as, I mean, we still may be in town, but it'll be um, my last uh, Sunday as senior pastor. Now, when we start a career, we retire, we go back to work in a different field and sometimes, and then retire from that. We move from house to house, from job to job, from one level of care to another. We make friends, we lose friends. And most profoundly, we're born, we live, and then we die. See, life is just one transition after another, isn't it? Nothing stays the same for very long. There are times we would like for it to, uh, but it doesn't. So we all face transitions in life. And quite frankly, we need help dealing with the transitions that life brings. So I'm wondering, is, is there anything from Elijah and Elisha's transition that can help us with our transition? Well, I think there are several helpful principles for dealing with transition in our text this morning, but I only want to point out two or three. So here's the first principle. The well-being of the kingdom of God does not depend on who holds the office of prophet or pastor. It depends on God. What was true with the kingdom of God in the days of Elijah and Elisha is true with us. The well-being of the kingdom of God does not depend on who holds the office of pastor. It depends on God. And God never changes. He never makes a transition because he doesn't have to. He is the only absolute perfect one. And you know, other than the Lord himself, no one is indispensable in the kingdom of God. Pastors and other leaders will come and go, but God's kingdom will carry on. So our confidence is in the power of the word of God, not in individual servants of God. So principle one, the well-being of the kingdom of God does not depend on who holds the office of pastor. It depends upon God. The uh, second principle is that an associate minister taking over from an older, more experienced man needs affirmation. Uh, is this in the text? Well, there is a scriptural principle revealed here. If you look with me at verse 8, is the PowerPoint loaded? Um, oh, still got the songs there. Okay, well, look in your Bibles on page 307 or 308. Uh, there's a verse, uh, number 9. When they had crossed, Elijah said to Elisha, 
Ask what I shall do for you before I am taken from you. And Elisha said, Please let there be a double portion of your spirit on me. So, what is Elisha asking for by requesting a double portion of Elijah's spirit? Does he want to be uh, twice as effective as uh, Elijah? Uh, well, actually what Elisha is asking of Elijah is that he be recognized as his true and legitimate successor. Um, there were lots of quote-unquote sons of the prophets. doesn't necessarily mean that they were biological sons of prophets. Uh, it means that they were in what would be equal to our seminaries. They were preparing for the, the ministry. And there were several of them, a, n a number of them. But Elisha wants Elijah to make it clear that he is the uh, chosen one to take over Elisha, Elijah's post uh, when he departs. Uh, by the way, it's kind of hard sometimes. I think Valerie did a, a nice job of making a distinction between Elijah and Elisha when she was reading the scriptures. And sometimes we get those confused. And so if you do get confused, you don't know whether we're talking about Elijah or Elisha, just say Elijah. And that'll cover everything. So Elijah said to Elijah, it doesn't really help there. Nevertheless, um, Elisha wants to be recognized as the firstborn. That's the term of these sons with all the rights and privileges that the firstborn uh, status would be accorded to him. In uh, Old Testament culture, uh, when a man died, his oldest son received a double portion of his estate. And that was because the oldest son would have more responsibility than uh, anyone else, uh, his brothers or his sisters. And among those responsibilities was the caring of the mother of his, um, or caring for his mother or maybe his father's wife if uh, he was married to someone who was not his mother. And he also had the responsibility of caring for unmarried sisters. And so the, the double portion worked like this. Say, for instance, a man had five sons, and then he dies. And the inheritance would be split up uh, not five ways, but six ways. And uh, the oldest son would get um, two shares. Uh, he'd get his share, then he'd get the double portion, which would be another share. So he would have two shares, and his brothers would have just one share, uh, in indicating that he had uh, a double portion. So uh, in, in essence, uh, Elisha is asking Elijah to regard him as the eldest son. Um, he wants a double portion of the spirit that was upon Elijah. Um, so in essence, he's wanting to be regarded as uh, Elijah's successor. Uh, but Elisha had already been designated as Elijah's uh, successor. If we go to 1 Kings 19.19, 19, uh, you can read that on the screen uh, while I uh, continue on. Uh, the request that Elisha is making here is a request for 
the spiritual power to fulfill this calling that he had already received. So in the previous uh, book of, of Kings, uh, we see that uh, Elisha had already been designated as the heir apparent, um, but he was asking in a way that made sense to everyone of the culture to be recognized as that designated heir. So uh, Elijah, in response, uh, tested the devotion of his disciples by uh, seeing if he would uh, persistently stay with him uh, through these last uh, remarkable hours on earth. Uh, centuries later, the Apostle Paul speaks of this principle of testing in his letter to the Romans, um, where he says, well, let me back up here a second. Um, here's what Elijah said to Elisha when uh, Elisha asked for a double portion of his spirit. He said, you've asked a hard thing. Uh, that is, it's not Elisha, Elijah's to give. You see me as I am. If you see me as I am being taken from you, it shall be so for you. But if you do not see me, then it, not, it shall not be so for you. So he's referring to, uh, you're going to be going through a time of testing with me if you are... Uh, faithful, if you hang in there with me up to the end um, and, and you see me being taken away, then your request uh, will be granted. So what I want to emphasize here is that there was a time of testing that Elisha was being put through. And uh, we also go through these times of testings and we'll see uh, that the scripture speaks to this situation in our lives where the Apostle Paul says, do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. So we're seeing in the Old Testament as well in the New Testament that when you need to know what the will of God is, there is a time of testing that you will go through that will enable you to have that time or that level of discernment. So Elijah tested the devotion of the disciples by uh, seeing if he would persistently stay with him, and uh, so he did. Now let's move to uh, the third principle, and uh, this is the one that I want to emphasize, I think, most of all. Uh, principle number three is we all have a call on our lives. When we talk about a call on your life in the context of, of church, we usually think, oh, pastors have a call on their lives, or missionaries have a call on their lives, or you know, maybe seminary professors would have a call on their lives, but we all have a call on our lives, every one of us. Every one of us uh, who loves the Lord and has made a definite commitment to follow him. And this call that is extended to us from, from God uh, has two parts to it. There is a call to being and there is a call to doing. So let's make a distinction between those. I want to start with our call to being. Uh, what is it that we are called to be? Uh, hearers of the word. And so you're fulfilling your calling. Uh, we are called to be hearers of the word, but not hearers only, also doers of the word, which we will get to in uh, just a couple of minutes. But hearing the word of God is a good thing, um, but it doesn't do a whole lot of good 
unless it sinks into your heart and it's evident by the way that you live that the word of God has indeed sunk into your heart. Uh, for example, if you go to Galatians 5, you see a listing of the gifts of the Spirit, um, the, the, the fruit of the Spirit, rather, uh, love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, gentleness, and, and, and so on. If these things are evident in your life, it means that you've been listening uh, to the Word of God. You've been reading uh, His Word. It has sunk into your, your mind and into your heart, and it's evident in your life. Um, so Galatians 5, about the fruit of the Spirit, is probably one of the best-known verses about uh, evidence of the Word of God sinking into your heart. But there are some more. I want to point out uh, just a couple or three. Uh, one of them is uh, 1 Peter 1.15. Like the Holy One who calls you, be holy yourselves also in all your behavior. Um, just as it is written, you shall be holy for I am holy. Uh, somehow or another, the footnote got in there instead. Uh, apologies for messing that up. Um, at least you know what website I went to to copy this verse. Uh, here's the other verse from Peter. Uh, is the sun going behind a cloud and then coming back out from behind the cloud inside the sanctuary? No one notices but me. It's just... You're noticing it too. Okay, so I'm not losing it. I'm, all right, that's good. Okay, uh, well, let's see what Peter said. Uh, Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable, so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation, that is, the day of judgment. Uh, another verse from Titus 2, verse 12. Uh, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age. This is our calling. Uh, we are to be saturated with the word and live it out. So we are in constant transition from one stage of our spiritual development to another, aren't we? And uh, not only as individuals, but also as a congregation, we've been in transition for years. You were probably, well, you were in transition when we came, and when we got here, it was transition. Oh, a lot of transitions. Uh, and I made note of just some of the ones I think that are noteworthy. That we've transitioned from a relatively shallow theological understanding of God to a much deeper one. We transition from one form of church government to another. We transition from one building to another. We transition from a congregation consisting primarily of long-term residents of Charleston to a congregation that includes a large percentage of university students. We transition from First Christian Church to Christ First Church. And we transition from a message said you were number one at First Christian Church to Christ is first in all things, always. So we've done a lot of transitioning in the past 20 or so years, but why? Have we been transitioning uh, just for the sake of change? Um, 
Do we always have to be transitioning? Wouldn't it be easier just to keep things as they are and reach a point where, hey, everybody's happy, let's just camp out here for the next decade or so? Uh, well, I do agree, and I think you will agree, agree with me that change for the sake of change alone is not a really good idea. You don't want to change just because something comes into your mind and uh, decide to move the piano from one end of the stage to the other. Um, but we change when change needs to be made. You know, you never get to a point in life in your walk with the Lord where you say, I have reached the pinnacle of my spiritual development. I cannot go any further than this. I have reached the top. If you have reached that point, I want to speak a warning to you. Uh, you were flirting with the sin of pride, and pride goes before destruction and a haughty spirit before a fall. Uh, so you need to keep going. We, we never get to the point in our walk with the Lord where we say, I have arrived. I have reached the state of sinless perfection in this body, on this earth, and there is no more growth uh, that I need to experience. So we recognize that we are always going to be struggling with sin. We are going to be uh, needing to become more Christ-like in our behavior. And so we are always in transition. And one of the things uh, I think we are always in transition from and transitioning to is that we are always in transition from a self-centered life to a Christ-centered life. That is, we are always transitioning from me first to Christ first. So, okay, what might that look like in your life? Well, it might look a lot like servanthood. Speaking of servanthood, consider Elisha. Elisha had been an apprentice to Elijah for, for around 18 years when the time came to pass the torch. Uh, picture with me, if you will, something that might have been going on um, with some of the families and Elijah in Elisha's day if they had the same kind of cultural values that we do. So let's picture uh, they're having a fellowship meal after the worship service, and as they are uh, kind of talking with one another, the conversation turns to how well their kids are doing. And so one of them says, uh, well, uh, my son has been accepted as an apprentice to the local doctor, so he's going to be a physician. And another says, well, my, my son has been studying under a, a certain rabbi, and so he uh, will be... Uh, one of the teachers of the law. And um, then come to uh, Elisha's parents. And by the way, it's good to know that uh, when e Elijah came and threw his mantle upon Elisha to indicate pretty much what Jesus said to the fishermen by the sea, you know, come follow me. Now that's what the, the mantle, that's part of our cultural understanding. We still use that term, um, come after me. So uh, it's always it's, it's good to acknowledge also that 
Uh, Elisha's family was pretty much well-to-do. Uh, Elisha was plowing with a couple of dozen oxen and to have more than one ox in those days uh, meant you were uh, pretty well off. I, I guess we could equate oxen to cars. You know, most people have one or two cars at home, maybe three or four or five if you got teenagers, and they all have cars. But, you know, 24? Uh, who has 24 cars in their driveway? You can't get, get, get that many in. Um, so I'm just trying to give you a picture that Elisha's parents are well off, they're respected in the community, and if there were uh, a conversation going on around the dinner table and it came their time to talk about what their son is doing, they might have to say something like this. Well, our son, Elisha, uh, fixes Elijah's breakfast. He washes his clothes. <laughs> He's a valet. Uh, he is a servant. Now, when we think in terms of someone being a servant, we think of someone who's not quite as high up on the social scale as some others would be. Um, but Jesus says, you know, when his disciples were arguing about who was going to be greatest among them, he said, let he who is greatest among you be servant of all. So there's something I want to point out here about e Elisha's um, humility. He apprenticed under Elijah for 18 years. By the time the 18-year period has uh, gone by, Elisha is probably in his early to mid-40s. Um, reminds me of someone else who's in his early to mid-40s who's been apprenticing for a long time. Uh, now Jared hasn't been here with us 18 years, but... Half of that for an associate role, pretty remarkable. Nobody else uh, who was an associate stayed here near that long. Uh, but the fact that Jared could put up with me for you know, nearly nine years and uh, be happy about it, I think, uh, you know, says something ab about his character. What I want to do is to prepare us for transitioning. You're transitioning from me being here uh, to Jared being here. And I want you to know he has a servant's heart. Besides being gifted, I mean, he's got more than a double portion of the spirit that's on me. Uh, I mean, I can preach, but Jared can also preach. He can also do music. He can also do technology. Uh, he can also do administrative work. So he's got at least four times the spirit that I have. Okay, and he does it all well. Um, so the torch should be passed down only to someone who has demonstrated that he has a servant's heart. And now we come to the call to doing. So call to being is to um, be a servant, um, which comes from hearing and doing the word of God. Let's talk about the, the call to doing. Now, the, the greater the doing, the more important the becoming. Um, and this was the kind of person Elisha was. He passed the test of serving, and uh, we noted that already. But the question I want to raise for us to consider, 
where does the power to be a servant come from? It's really not all that hard to have the role of authority if that's given to you. Um, you can accept that uh, gladly, but to accept the role of servant requires humility. So where do you get the power to embrace humility? Well, we get a clue from verse 11 in um, 2 Kings 2. As they still went on and talked, behold, chariots of fire and horses of fire separated the two of them, and Elijah went up by a whirlwind into heaven. So uh, this is popular imagery in church culture if you've been around very long. Uh, there is an old song, um, Swing Low, Sweet Chariot, which a lot of uh, uh, barbershop quartet type uh, musicians uh, like to sing. And it's uh, uh, the image that, that comes to mind is there's this chariot that comes down of heaven with this band of angels coming forward to carry you home to glory. Uh, kind of reminds me of what United Airlines used to call the friendly skies. Uh, but I'm not sure these were friendly skies because in addition to a chariot of fire and horses of fire, there was a whirlwind. You know what a whirlwind is, don't you? It's, it's a tornado. And so picture the scene. You've got uh, these, these, this chariot of fire, horses of fire, and this tornado. When we think of uh, a chariot, um, what image comes to mind? Uh, would it be uh, something along the lines of a, a limousine? Uh, or maybe one of those uh, carriage rides you might take in a, uh, a tourist area somewhere. Maybe in Chicago you might uh, take a little carriage ride. Uh, when we think of carriage, we tend to think in terms of privilege or luxury. But a chariot was never used for those purposes in Bible times. A chariot was used for one purpose and one, one, person on, one purpose only. And that was destruction. A chariot was an instrument of destruction. Much like a tornado. A tornado is an instrument of destruction. And so the vision that Elisha sees coming out of heaven. You got the chariot of fire. Ah, vision of destruction. And horses of fire, also a, a vision of destruction or of war because they were pulling the chariot. And then you see this whirlwind, this funnel cloud, this twister. And we all know here in Tornado Alley uh, what that means. It means destruction. And when we take all these things together, uh, what do all these symbols mean? It means that the justice of God is being revealed. Okay, when you think about justice of God does being revealed, does that conjure up in your mind something that is pleasant, uh, attractive, desirous, or does it give you a negative connotation of wanting to hide somewhere because judgment is something to be feared? Suppose for a moment 
um, speaking of the justice of God, uh, suppose that um, God outfitted us, adorned us with invisible tape recorders uh, that were programmed to record uh, our voices anytime we instructed someone else on how they ought to live their life. And on Judgment Day, uh, you're standing before God, and he's not judging you according to his law, his perfect standard. He's not judging you um, standing next to Jesus, the only uh, perfect person to ever live. Uh, none of us could stand to be judged by that. But what if he judged us according to the way we judged others? Well, that would be a reason to fear, wouldn't it? Uh, we would dread judgment. And yet, when the chariots of fire and the horses of fire and the whirlwind show up and they take Elijah, they're not taking him to hell, they're taking him to heaven. What? You mean to say that the justice of God and going to heaven are connected? This is what the scripture is saying. You know, Elijah can't believe what he sees. He can't understand it. But we can because we live on this side of the cross. And Elisha lived on the other side of the cross. Let me bring some imagery to your mind from, from scripture. When Jesus came, he said, I have a baptism of fire to go through. What is that? When Jesus died, there was thunder and flashes of lightning. What was that all about? Because Jesus Christ was immersed into the justice of God, he paid a debt he did not owe for the sake of those who owed but could not pay. When Elisha saw with his eyes, the apostle, or whatever it was that Elisha saw with, with his eyes, the apostle John tells us propositionally in 1 John 1.9, he says, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sin and cleanse us of all unrighteousness. And notice that the verse does not say, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and merciful. It says, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just. You know what this means? It means that if Jesus has paid our debt of sin, it would be unjust of God to charge you with sin and demand payment for your sin when that sin has already been paid for. It means that not only is God's mercy on your side, his justice is also on your side. It means that the justice of God is what takes you to heaven. Elisha saw this with his eyes, the power of the gospel. He also realized something else, that you can see the glory of God and live. Elisha was excited and amazed with the ascension of Elijah to heaven and for the difference that would make in his life, but we have reason to be even more amazed 
After Jesus died and resurrected from the dead, 40 days later, he ascended into heaven. And what does this tell us? It means that God has accepted Jesus' sacrifice for everyone who puts their full faith and trust in him. If you see with eyes of faith the ascension of Jesus into heaven, then all other pressure is off. You don't have to live a perfect life to be accepted by God. You don't have to pay the enormous debt of your sin because Jesus has done all of that for you. He lived the perfect life that we should have lived. He paid the debt that we should have paid. He did all of that for us. Justice was satisfied at the cross. And Elisha saw the precursor of that when the justice of God comes and takes Elijah into heaven through symbols of judgment. The chariots of fire, the horses of fire, the whirlwind are all symbols of the justice of God. And because of what Jesus has done for us, the justice of God is not on your head, it's on your side. I'm, I'm reminded of something the Apostle Paul said, if God be for us, who can be against us? And so, what should you do in light of the message of the gospel? It's on every page in the Bible. And here is what our correct response is. Repent. That is, recognize that you've been going the wrong way if you've been going the wrong way. You're not going to find your purpose in life by trying hard. You need to see what Jesus did for you. The glory of God was once lethal to anyone who touched it, but now the glory of God takes you to heaven. If you understand that, you live with a sense of purpose, a sense that there is a call on your life to be a hearer and a doer of the word. And this is the call to our congregation. As we go through this period of transition, keep on being hearers of the word. Keep on being doers of the word. Keep on seeking the glory of God as we transition from one degree to another. Pastors, missionaries, and others who were recognized as having been set apart for ministry have a call on their lives. We know that. But we're not the only ones. All of us who have seen with eyes of faith the glory of the resurrection and the ascension of Jesus Christ into heaven also have a call on their lives, on all of our lives, to be hearers and doers of the word. May this be what we are known by. Let us pray. Gracious Father, we thank you for your word, uh, which enlightens us, encourages us, opens our eyes, and enables us to see wonderful things, in particular to see uh, the, the gospel and uh, the, the life of someone who would point to you through his ministry. 
And as we make uh, transitions from uh, one stage in life to another, from one degree of glory to another, we ask uh, for your guidance. We ask for your assurance. We ask that even when we are taken away, either for a temporary assignment on this earth or for a permanent reassignment to heaven, may we know that wherever we are, you are there also. And wherever you are, we are reminded that your mercy and your justice take us to you. Through Christ our Lord, we pray. Amen.